Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast, positive solutions to help you thrive, homestead, garden, and designing your intentional life. Okay, welcome back to Thrive in the Future. This week, I've got Tristan from Bitcoin and Beef on Twitter and also the author of Bitcoin and Beef on Amazon. How's it going, Scott? Thanks for having me. How are you? Not too bad. No complaints. Excellent. So give a little background on yourself. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you you highlighted, I, I wrote a book called Bitcoin and Beef, which is a bit of a culmination of, you know, two passions I had for, for quite some time. So I guess starting on, you know, the health food system side of things, I sustained kind of one too many concussions in college in 2017 and didn't get the answers I needed from the traditional healthcare system. So it kind of sent me down the self-healing rabbit hole, which a lot of folks I've met have gone down the same and kind of been their door into evaluating their health, the healthcare system, the whole centralized food system as well. So yeah, I just started consuming like a ton of information on YouTube, podcasts, books. And I realized, you know, there's a lot of free, very valuable information, but also a lot of people with similar stories and lifestyle habits can have a major impact in, in healing from a traumatic injury or health condition like I had. And after a year plus of having daily headaches, irritability, classic concussion syndromes, symptoms, sorry, which is called post-concussive syndrome or PCS, I started feeling a lot better. And from there, I was kind of hooked. So, you know, I graduated college in, in 2019, but continued on this path of, of learning about health optimization, which ultimately led me to becoming very interested in in nutrition and food, and then the food system as well. So I got really into, you know, regenerative agriculture. My sister was living in Wyoming. So I started buying like quarter and half beefs from uh, local ranchers that she was friends with, which was really cool. And Mm -hmm. I I started getting connected a a bit more with the food system, shopping at uh, farmer's markets and just reading and researching. So that was kind of one passion I had. And then simultaneously, I was an engineer in a tech school and got fascinated with with cryptocurrencies in 2017, mostly just because, you know, it was a buzzword and, you know, people were making a lot of money. Um, And I kind of learned the hard way in in the bear market uh, following in 2018, 2019. But then in 2020, uh, you know, with the COVID crisis and economic crash, I got, you know, really into the macroeconomic picture of of what was going on. And and that kind of led me to, to Bitcoin. And 2021 to end of 2020 into 2021, I started realizing that these two passions, you know, things I was interested in was kind of for the same reason, right? So it's like when I had my brain injury, I really felt limited and I hated that feeling because I was a very high functioning person. I was an engineering student, also varsity, you know, collegiate athlete. And then all that was taken away from me. And I just felt like I wasn't in control of my life. And that's what these topics and decentralization is all about. It's, it's kind of putting the individual back in the driver's seat. And uh, what I've seen so much is, you know, we've just traded that away for, for convenience at the societal level. So I think being empowered and getting connected with your food system, taking control of your health, and then your wealth with Bitcoin is uh, really what it's all about. And that's why I wrote a book on it. I realized there was kind of some good books about Bitcoin, obviously, a million books about diet um, and, you know, the food system, some on great ones on regenerative agriculture, but nothing really connecting the dots. So, yeah, that's sure. kind of how it came to fruition. Great. 
So let's dive into the food a little bit. I mean, the folks in our homesteading audience are pretty knowledgeable about all the bad things. What have you been doing with the regenerative bag and some of the things you've been maxing on beef? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, I I kind of just started with, you know, what's the most nutrient dense foods uh, on the planet. And I think to me, it was it was clear that this was definitely animal foods. As I dove deeper into the nutrition, I I even wrote in the book, I think it was like, I feel like this is the least up for debate part of the conversation, especially when you look at bioavailability of nutrients. And yeah, especially ruminants just seem to be, you know, the highest quality of that compared to say other sources of protein. And, you know, the most uh, accessible source of ruminant meat, of course, is beef uh, in the United States. I mean, I'm very pro other types of ruminants, uh, such as bison, such as lamb, such as goat. And of course, probably the best of them all is, is wild ruminants if you, if you hunt them yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's something I also got into in 2022 and, and was successful with, which was a fantastic experience. And, and now I'm hooked on that. But yeah, regenerative agriculture, regenerative raising of, of livestock animals really comes back to just, you know, emulating nature, right? I mean, this long history of why we got into this industrial farming complex in the mid 20th century, and then it continued to accelerate what happened in 1971, not yep. just all about gold. So there's there's an inflection point there as well with Earl Butts. And, you know, the accelerator with subsidies as a result of the policies he implemented and, and the crash in the 80s just hasn't come off since. And here we are today. Who's at fault? You know, not one person, not one big company. They're just using the cheapest products and taking advantage of the laws that are in place and the subsidies that are in place. This has been a culmination and an acceleration in in this industrial processed food trend, which also ties back to the fiat monetary system of needing to profitize and productize everything to keep it propped up. And so here we are, you know, people are eating less and less high quality food with higher calories and and less micronutrients. Um, People are less connected to their food system. And we have kind of a solution, which is really just going back to our our roots pre 1900, probably of regenerative agriculture, which is just emulating nature, rotating your animals frequently, letting the ground and the soil have its recovery period having a multi-species crops that you're planting instead of just a monoculture, which is, you know, the trademark of industrial farming. And um, yeah, just trying to do that in the best way possible for the environment you're in. Yeah, that's good. You were talking about the post-concussion syndrome. A lot of folks are walking around with brain inflammation just because of sugar and bread and and all those things that are added to bread. I know that some of the functional medicine doctors are starting to call it, uh, type three diabetes, mm-hmm. right? Where you are, you start and and I ha- I've had some problems with this where I I get brain fog. I got at one point in 2017 to the point where. I was, I forgot I had a conversation with my boss in the morning. And so I had to significantly change my diet and focus more on a paleo keto type diet. Yeah. I think the grain brain is, is a good book actually, if, okay. uh, if anyone's read that, but yeah, I mean, there's, we're eating foods that are just so far away from like a whole food, natural occurring thing that, that our DNA, that our biology is, is designed to eat. And uh, we're also just not operating in, in a natural environment in any sense of, of the word. Um, so sure. not even just food. I mean, we're not outside. We're outside a fraction of what we used to in front of technology all the time. So there's just a whole slew of things that are really have just 
completely change our entire lifestyle in the past 50 to 100 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what else are you doing besides going in with family members on grass-fed beef? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, I'm, I'm trying to break into the this space more and more. I work with a, a bison rancher in Wyoming now, so wow. trying to get more involved. So I've been selling bison meat on, you know, on Twitter, and uh, he's kind of getting started and has a lot of plans to expand, which is exciting. You know, I talked about bison earlier. I do think, you know, any ruminant meat is great, but the native large ruminant of uh, North America is is super cool. Um, they're, you know, so resilient. They're semi-wild because they've only been domesticated for about 100 years where we yeah. decimated the population from like, you know, 40 to 50 million to about 500 at the end of the 19th century, which is a fascinating story. And yeah, we were able to save them, thankfully. And now they're back at like half a million total. Probably, I think there's two or 300,000 ranched in the US. But just to give a comparison point, there's about 150,000 cattle that are slaughtered in the US every day. So it, yeah. every day. So that's, uh, you know, it's not even a meaningful sliver of the pie, but it's really cool because they do better on, on lower quality forage. You know, this is their native prairies and, and lands and they're a bit tougher from an infrastructure perspective, of course, but yeah, there's something about, you know, having your, your native room and it kind of resurge. And, uh, I'm excited to see where it goes at a high level with, with bison, but excited to also just get more involved in, uh, providing people high quality food and nutrients. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, we had bison chili the other night. It was good. Nice, nice. That's awesome. So what about Bitcoin? How do you tie all those together? Going back to the food system and you know how that ties back to the monetary system. And, and really, I see it as kind of this high level overarching view that when the money is, is broken and you see this with, you know, inflation, I mean, the whole banking system is, is kind of in a, a very fragile moment right now, even, but it's been going on. We went fully fiat in, in 1971. So I mentioned that's kind of an inflection point. Most people know that, mm -hmm. but what does that really mean? And it really means that it's not backed by anything. So the rails have come off and how soon that fully implodes you know, you don't know. It's kind of just setting the timer for the end, probably, of the US dollar at some point. But the way I see it is, you know, when you debase your monetary supply by increasing the balance sheet so much over a certain period of time, the only way to offset that is by continued and sustained and large economic growth at a high level, right? Sure. And that's why, you know, the debt to GDP ratio is always like a decent indicator. And right now it's, it's so high, it's triple digit percentage, which uh, it's kind of, I think it's the highest since World War II, which we're not in any significant war right now. So it's not even an acceptable reason. What do you do as a industry, as a system to keep that propped up? And it's, yeah, continued economic growth. So I think every investor that's out there wants to stave off inflation, right? They want to make a better return on their investment than what the dollar is doing. Mm -hmm. So they have to invest in things that are going to give them, you know, eight to 10% return year on year, because inflation at the real value of it is probably around five to 6% on average, not like 2%, like the CPI typically states. And of course, in the last couple of years, the CPI is what, like six to 9%. In reality, it's probably 15 to 20%, uh, really? depending on what you buy. And um 
Yeah. So investors are looking for like a double digit return year on year. So that means companies, all they focus on is posting double digit gains year on year, and they have to sit in front of those shareholders and, and do that. So what does that result in? It just results in optimizing their products for, you know, cost effectiveness. So it's all about higher efficiency. It's all about higher yield, creativity, ingenuity, all that goes out the wayside. You kind of just get into, you know, the manufacturing giant footprint of how do you just churn out more for less? So use the cheapest ingredients possible. And then, yeah, you, you market it very heavily and you try and broaden your customer base. So you broaden your, your total available market. So in the food system side of things, that results in all this crap that we see popping up, you know, for a while, it's just, you know, the processed foods and your junk food, your chips, your cookies and all that. But now we're seeing this leach into every aspect. We're seeing plant-based meat companies coming out. I mean, the valuations of some of these at their IPO were absolutely astronomical. Thankfully, they've pretty much failed miserably because they don't taste good and their marketing budgets are so high because they had to spend all this money to try and convince people that it's better for your health, it's better for the planet. And of course, that's just a whole marketing ploy. Lab-based meats, all these things, you just get like the Bill Gates of the world who are pushing all this just from an investment perspective. And uh, I personally think it's all as a result of just this greater economic need for continued growth. And I mean, you see it in tech, you see it in every facet of our economy. And it's, it's pretty crazy. And even myself, I still work in a corporate industry in the semiconductor industry. And I I see it the same thing in my job every day, it's all about manufacturing and bringing costs down. And the creativity is kind of like, we need to streamline everything to make higher profits and higher revenue. Yeah. I knew a a guy who was in engineering school at KU. He had a CNC project that he had to do and he put in some artistic work on it and they flunked him because they said, Hey, we're making button pusher guys that we need you to follow what Coke says. We're, we're making engineers that are going to go to Coke to aircraft to these other manufacturing. And by adding in that flair, you just cost them X number extra dollars. So they literally failed him and he ended up dropping out and then became an entrepreneur and, and is much more successful. There's still, you know, so much opportunity, but, but you see, it's like the real innovation is only happening with like startups. um, I would say, and uh, these, the big conglomerates, all they care about is, is just streamline sometimes the result naturally, but I feel like it's it's just become this crazy need to just continuously grow. And it's just unsustainable. I mean, right. you shouldn't be posting, you know, double digit gains as an industry, like every single year. It's like, how, how do we keep that going? And in reality, you can, and, and we're seeing that kind of unfold. It's all a shell game. They've even moved companies in and out of the Dow Jones Industrial Index mm-hmm. so that it stays positive. Coca-Cola and some of the big ones are slowly moved out and then the tech giants are left in so that they can pad the the prices. So, but how are you using Bitcoin to decentralize and to offset that? So fundamentally, you know, why is Bitcoin different? Why is it something worth uh, learning about? And it's because it's, it's really, you know, the only form of money that exists 
mm-hmm. that has programmed digital scarcity and, and a finite supply, right? It's, and that can't be changed. You know, there's no Federal Reserve. There's, there's no CEO. There's no marketing department. So when you have that, you're just creating a lot of inherent value um, by just from a scarcity perspective and becoming on par with gold from like a stock to flow scarcity perspective. Uh, which is interesting. And gold has is, is always been kind of the store of value that stood the test of time. But why is, you know, Bitcoin better than gold? Or, you know, why is it just not another gold? It's because it's totally native to the internet. It's native to this digital age that we live in. So it's highly transactable. It's highly divisible. You know, you don't have to buy one Bitcoin. You can buy one one millionth of a Bitcoin, which is one um, Satoshi. And um, you can really transact with it very easily. Um, I could send you some right now. Um, It doesn't take long to settle on the blockchain. You can send extremely large amounts of money for very little fees. Um, It knows no borders. So it solves, you know, international payments, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a huge issue, especially for like migrant workers who are working abroad you know, they have an inflating currency and, you know, remittance fees to pay on on sending money back home to loved ones, which is really where Bitcoin shines. And and to be honest, here in the US, we don't, we take money for granted. And we take the system we have for granted every single day, because, you know, we're talking about inflation, 10, 15% is bad. Oh, it's horrible. It's so bad you know, go live in Argentina, go live in Venezuela, go to Turkey or Nigeria or places where 50% inflation is is the norm. Mm-hmm. And we don't realize the luxury and, and the privilege that we have. But for Bitcoin in these places, the adoption rate is far higher because it actually serves like a real world, you know, life-saving purpose for these people. And it, it's fantastic. And, you know, people always harp on on the volatility, but you know, it's it's not it's not even close to as bad as as their national currency, and it's something that if you just hold it for a few years, it's always going to be in the green due to that digital scarcity perspective. Why is Bitcoin volatile? It's it's volatile because of what's going on at the Federal Reserve. Right. Um, so to me, it's a, it's a no brainer to at least be partially you know invested in Bitcoin. It's totally different asset class. It's the best inflation hedge long term that that you could have, and and it offers something that no other asset or money can, and that, and that's program scarcity. So, to me, it's uh really it would be wise to always consider having a small percentage of your portfolio or your investments in in Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Um. And then I think it's real important to use it for commerce. Because what it actually, when <laughs> you get an inverse relationship when it when the price goes up, the fees go up a little bit more, and then it makes it harder to it makes it harder to divide up enough to pay for a tree or pay for you know plants mm-hmm. or whatever, right? So, and the Bitcoin network is made to be used, and sometimes holding it doesn't use the network enough. So, I really like using it for commerce as well. One hundred percent. And that's something that's changed drastically, I think, the past two years um, mm-hmm. is that the, the growth of the Bitcoin circular economy is uh, is definitely rapidly increasing, which is fantastic yeah. because it, everything you just said, it's important to incentivize people to use it. You know, we're transacting outside of the traditional financial system, which is great. 
and uh, we're exchanging, you know, value for value, right? Like I've sold bison meat for, for Bitcoin. I've bought other things with Bitcoin and uh, yeah, I really feel great about it because it's easy, it's quick and it's showing, you know, someone that you value their product so heavily that you're willing to give them, you know, Bitcoin, which is also something of, of very high value. And you kind of, you know, keep that circular economy growing, especially if it's it's local. It's even, you know, it's it's even better. So yeah, I'm a huge fan of that. There's some apps out there that are growing in marketplaces, but absolutely it's it's the best feeling in the world when you can buy or sell something in Bitcoin, I think. Right, definitely. What other tips do you have to help decentralize our lives? It's all about ownership and, you know, personal responsibility. I feel if you're truly decentralized, you're really just in control of more and more facets of your life. And in some facets, it's it's really hard. And this is what I harp on a lot is you probably can make the biggest difference in the food system. What's something you buy pretty much every day or multiple times a week and you're consuming every day is food. And, you know, you have the choice to go support someone who's local in your region, in your area, who's working hard. You can personally verify the quality of their operation and support them by exchanging value for value. And that's what it's all about. That's becoming more decentralized because then when the grocery store shelves are empty, you have made a personal connection, a personal relationship, and um, you have that person, you know, on your side to support you. And, and if you've supported them, they will help you out. And, you know, you go a step further. If you want to be the utmost, you know, decentralized person, you probably, you know, have a homestead and, and grow your own food and are totally off grid. But obviously that's not an option for, for everybody, I would say. Right. It's those types of things. It's that type of mindset, taking ownership of, of your health, right? Like if you're outside of the general public in the US, if you optimize your health, you're not going to need to rely on this very centralized healthcare system. Maybe you can just get a health insurance plan that's for, you know, just covering emergencies only, you know, if you do have like, you know, break an arm or something, um, that's probably all you really need it for. I mean, you can buy third party lab testing and get your own blood work done once a year, um, just to stay on top of it for a few hundred dollars. It's, it's become a lot more popular. So really just those are the, I think the big ones. You were talking about healthcare. So I, I have a uh, direct primary care. And so I just pay the doctor every month. And then I can see him as much as I want. Most of the time, I don't even have to go in. He just texts me and says, hey, I'm going to put whatever you need in the box and you just come and get it. And if I had to have lab work, it was like 25 bucks. (laughs) It was a big difference than just, if I would have turned that into insurance, it would have been $2,000. And then my deductible would have been a thousand. I would have ended up paying a thousand dollars. So, and like you were saying, you can negotiate out with uh, and get direct lab work and maybe you get a whole CBC workup and it's $250 cash if you turned it into the the insurance it would be $2500 and then you'd yeah. end up paying a thousand because of the deductible so did you get that relationship with your doctor through knowing him or how did that come come about no i saw an advert for it i think one of my friends had was already one of his uh direct primary care patients i started doing that and then I go a couple times a year and if something happens, I just call them up and I, it's impossible to get into a normal doctor in one day, but it, I don't have any trouble getting in to see him. Or like I said, most of the time he just 
we take care of it during text. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that's really important, you know, on the decentralized decentralization side of things is like it doesn't have to be fully at the individual level. It's it's at the local community level, right? It's like that's these true. hubs, these nodes, um, because it ends up becoming community where where you all have each other's backs and you're kind of trying to operate in the best needs and uh, for that local community that you're in and, and you can barter, you can trade services and, and that's really what it's all about. And right. um, then you don't have to worry about the centralized high level systems that exist. And then it becomes more, more redundant as well um, with mm-hmm. this type of, you know, network or web. And I think that's, you know, helping people as well with the, you know, the services or, or the knowledge and experience that, that you have. And, and that's really what it's all about. So it sounds very individualistic, but to be honest, I think what's really important is to extrapolate it at a community level locally. Right. Yeah, definitely. To make those local connections and have backup. So my refrigerator went out, someone's going to come and help me. You know, a guy, that's the whole thing. That's, and that's taking proof of work from Bitcoin that concept and then applying it to community and relationships, right? I've got proof of work. I've got skin in the game with this, mm-hmm. these guys and I'm going to call them up and somebody's going to come and help me if they need help. You know, I, I went the other night and helped plow uh, the garden for my neighbor who just recovering from surgery and then doing those things, you've got the proof of work. So you know, they're going to, they're going to back you up because you've had skin in the game. You got a relationship with them. 100%. Yeah. And and then, you know, after a while, you're just, everyone's elevated at mm-hmm. that level and everyone's vitality is in everyone else's best interest. So it's a positive, right. you're creating positive feedback loops within the community. And, and that's, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Any final thoughts? It's interesting to think about, right? Because we paint this very romanticized picture of like, oh, if everything was just fully decentralized, like the world would be a much better place. What would a really a better system look like? And I was, you know, I was actually just in, in Switzerland and their model is is quite interesting. I don't know <laughs> how familiar you are with it, but no. they're very decentralized in the government implementation. They have states that are called like cantons. Every state is completely like they're on their own, almost. It's mm. like very independent. Uh, you know, they pay high taxes, but they pay it all at the state level because it's like eight, seven percent or something is federal. And then it ranges from like 15 to 35 percent at the state level. But all that money then gets paid or gets used locally within the state, within the canton. And, you know, they go to the town hall every Saturday and they vote on it. And, you know, if you don't like something and the politicians are all very, you know, they're just average, you know, people, they're not rich, you know, politicians. And if they try to do something crazy, they just get voted out. So, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's easy to romanticize full anarchism and decentralization, but it's like, what, what is a realistic solution? And to me, that that's something that I I did not know until recently. And Mm -hmm. it seems to be working, you know, quite well, or at least better than what we have here um, in the US and in other European countries where it's extremely centralized, and there's a lot of government intervention. So yeah, I'm curious, uh, if you have any thoughts on that as, as well, but I just wanted to spike that out. Yeah, I think around here we've we've had some freedom community movements and stuff like that, and they get hampered by the everybody trying to build their own stuff, right? So we 
one of us had an Apple press and then we all got together and it was really great. We were, we were pressing apples. People brought their apples. We made cider. We tasted cider. It was a great community event, but then there were still too many of us saying, you know, I need to get one for myself. And it's like, well, wait a minute. If you're doing that, then, you know, sure. It's a good thing to have a backup, but there's still too much of the, I'm going to go it alone mentality. Mm. Whereas sure, we don't need, Washington really doesn't do much for any of us at this point. So I live in Kansas and 350 miles from here to the Colorado border, right? So people out there in Western Kansas don't care what Kansas City and Topeka in the Northeast part of Kansas are doing. And they don't care what their politicians are doing. When the mask mandates or whatever mandates happen, they pretty much, some counties ignored it. You know, that's the kind of decentralization that we need not to just be obnoxious and, and, and everything, but Hey, we got this covered. We're covering each other. So, you know, leave us alone. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. And it's tough. Yeah. Cause I mean, the States obviously here in the, you know, the U S are, are massive and you just see like areas, you know, like Texas or, or New York state where the big cities, you know, dominate the legislation mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the more rural areas couldn't be more different ideologically. And, yeah, it, it should really, you know, come down to you know, the community county level. But sure. yeah, it's it seems like there's always rules and everything that that get in the way there. So uh, I'm, I'm curious to see how if anything changes like that. Um, I, I think what's so hard is, you know, people's impact um, at the at the ballot box. I feel like you probably you know, have more impact in, in just like hyper local elections than anything above that. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why I, I always preach. It's like you, your impact at the ballot box is, is somewhat of a illusion um, in my opinion, but your impact with your consumer purchasing dollar cannot be, you know, that cannot be taken away from you. And it's still dictating market trends for sure. As you know, we talked about earlier with like plant-based foods and things like that. And, and we're seeing a movement of trend towards transparency and, and quality in, in the food space. So don't undervalue your power when it comes to your purchasing dollar. Great. Yeah. So how, uh, give a plug for your book and how people can contact you or keep up on Twitter. Absolutely. So yeah, my book is called Bitcoin and Beef. It's uh, available on Amazon. Actually, the second edition just came out and that's because I re- record an audio book. So if you like to listen to my voice uh, from this teaser, you can listen to it for six and a half hours at Bitcoin and underscore beef on on Twitter, also on on Instagram, Bitcoin and beef. So yeah, check it out. Uh, Definitely more active on on Twitter and continue to to write threads and and post educational and interesting stuff that that I find anything to do with, you know, health, Bitcoin and bison for the most part. Great. Thank you, Tristan. Thank you for listening to Thriving the Future podcast. Like us and follow us on your favorite podcast app. Next time on Thriving the Future podcast. Great stuff coming up on Thriving the Future. Ashley Colby from Rizoma School on building community by rediscovering tradition. And Homestead Padre on living with depression on the homestead. That's coming up on Thrive in the Future podcast.